Welcome to Claim the Stage, a podcast for women who want to discover, awaken, and create their voice through the art of public speaking. I'm your host, Angela Lucier, award-winning professional speaker, author, and CEO and founder of The Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. Welcome to episode 132. Today's episode is all about how to stand behind a bold message. Have you ever wanted to say something but felt like you had to soften it or come up with words that didn't feel so intense or scary to other people? Yeah, I've done that too. And if you have a big, bold message you want to share with the world, I think you're going to like today's episode because we're going to talk about how to do that. And my guest, Rachel braun Sherl is going to talk to you about what happened when she picked big, bold words to describe her work. And she's going to give you some tips and advice on what you can be doing to get your message out into the world. Now, she is a champion for the business of women's health and a pioneer in the space where she has passionately focused on driving the conversation about solutions and options for women's sexual and reproductive health. So being in this field, she's had to work hard to get attention and get funding for her companies. So you know that having a bold message helps with that in a a big way. Rachel's international client base includes Fortune 500 leaders and venture-backed startups from menstruation to menopause. As the business unit director of Mana Molecular's Vela, a clinically proven CBD sexual enhancement for women, Rachel continues to identify breakthrough solutions for women and innovating in the space. She's a sought-after keynote speaker, board member, as well as the author of the bestseller, Orgasmic Leadership, Profiting from the Coming Surge in Women's Sexual Health and Wellness. So if the words orgasmic leadership grab your attention, that's a good thing. That's the point. (laughs) And she's going to talk more about that and a name she has for herself and offers to other women working in the, the same space as her. So I hope you enjoyed today's interview. Rachel Braun Sherl, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk with you today because you're going to be sharing some of your journey into entrepreneurship and becoming a speaker with a bold message. And I talk with a lot of speakers who are afraid of coming out and being too big and too bold and making too much of a statement that scares their audience away or seems unrelatable and just too far from where their audience is. So I'm excited to hear more about how you came to your title for your book and for the work that you're doing. But before we get to that, Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So I've spent my career building brands and businesses, both for myself and for other people. I started my career at Johnson & Johnson after business school and built a skill set and relationships that have been foundational to everything I've done since, which has really been focusing on driving uh, top-line growth. How do you get consumers, customers, clients, patients, um, other companies, how do you get them to engage uh, in a transaction? So I'm very, I consider it very pragmatic strategy. Uh, About 11 years ago, I had the opportunity to be associated with a company that had a product that 
was a patented blend of botanical oils and extracts that was clinically proven to increase arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women of all ages and life stages. And that's when I became uh, a vagipreneur, which I ultimately trademarked because it seemed like such a good shorthand to describe a person in the business of sexual health. Um, and so for the past 10 or 11 years, I've really been focused squarely in the what I would call the, the range of businesses and opportunities and challenges across a woman's sexual and reproductive health life from menstruation to menopause. So that includes menstruation, fertility, infertility, pregnancy, disease prevention, menopause, incontinence, um, everything in between. And I was drawn to the category really because from a marketing perspective, it was the perfect storm. So you had a, an emotionally engaging category you had very few solutions at the time, and I would argue you have you have more now. But you know, there's no holy grail like there might be in other um, categories. At the time, we were looking at the company. Only three to five percent of obstetricians and gynecologists talked to their patients about sexual enjoyment. Women didn't speak to their partners and friends for a whole bunch of reasons, which we could talk about. And I just was so drawn to the opportunity to create a vocabulary and a language, a conversation and, and a business. So it just took me and I've just been enamored with the space since then. Yeah, can you share some of the reasons why women don't talk to their friends and partner about it? Um, the reason there isn't a lot of conversation is, is multifactorial. One of the reasons is we don't really have a language. And what I mean by that is we're in a world where we're in our third decade into erectile dysfunction and Viagra and Cialis and Levitra, and we've been educated with a language that's bigger, longer, stronger. And that language doesn't tend to apply or ring true for women or people who identify as women. They don't think of sex as a performance activity. So that's one reason. The second is if you look at our educational system for sex ed, um, fewer than 50% of the states in the country require sex ed, and some subset of those don't require it to be scientifically and medically accurate. So if you can imagine uh, that in, the, in some cases where we actually have sex education, uh, that we don't even, we're not giving children, young boys and girls, the information and the language to talk about it. Add to that the ubiquity of porn, which creates a whole nother language and dialogue. And uh, finally, it's because it's quite intimate. And if I'm close enough to someone to talk about my sex life with them, we're likely friends. So on a Tuesday, I could be telling them that my husband used to do this move where he would dismount from the chandelier and we'd have this great, exciting experience. And now he doesn't do it anymore and I miss it. And then the next day we could be out to dinner and that person is sitting across from my husband in what now feels like an overly intimate setting where they know something about me and my partner uh, that feels a little too personal. Mm-hmm. I want to get back to your vagipreneur title. Is that a title that you gave yourself or that you try to um, encourage other women in the space to go by as well? 
it was given to me, and I always give credit where credit is due. Um, it was created by a journalist by the name of Abby Ellen, who had written about the company that I'd worked with, my first company in the space. And as we were talking to her about, you know, we're not delivering medical care, we're not healthcare pre- practitioners, we're people in the business of sexual health. And she said, oh, a vagipreneur. And I said, that's amazing. That's great. It became a shorthand. And it's turned out to be so useful that I reached out to Abby and I said, I'd love to trademark or copyright this, but you came up with it. So it's yours. If you want it, do you want it? Um, And she said, no, take it. And I went through the process of uh, trademarking it. But absolutely, it was her um, creative turn of phrase. That's great. (laughs) Now, your title of your book is Orgasmic Leadership. Can you talk about your journey from becoming a vagipreneur to writing a book about orgasmic leadership? Wow. So yeah, it's been incredibly exciting. So I grew up um, in in a business environment where, you know, I thought if you worked hard and you were smart and you were ethical, um, you could break through barriers. Well, you can, but it turns out those barriers are even bigger uh, in this world of female sexual and reproductive health. So background uh, to the book was when we were trying to build this business and we sold it in 2013, we had gone out to about 100 different media outlets. That would be cable stations, networks, websites, radio stations. And 95% of them said, no, we won't take your money for you to advertise your product that's clinically proven and works, by the way, on our platform. And so what we realized as a, that we needed as a business strategy was if we couldn't buy media, if you will, if you couldn't buy advertising, that we would have to earn it by creating a different kind of conversation. So we built a PR campaign, a communication campaign around the idea of the disparity between men and women's advertising. You know, just to give you an example, we couldn't advertise on Lifetime at 8.30 p.m. when I'm pretty sure 10-year-old boys aren't watching, but erectile dysfunction drugs can be on CBS at 5 p.m. doing the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So there was a real difference between the access that we had. And that result catapulted me, if you will, into doing a lot of speaking on the topic, on the disparity between advertising, on the lack of access to media channels, as a way to create a conversation and build a business. So that's sort of the backdrop, how I started becoming almost a spokesperson, if you will, for the space. About, um, wow, it's got to be several years ago, I was at a conference and I, yet, and I met another brilliant woman uh, by the name of Karen Kahn, who said, Rachel, you're doing all this talking about leadership and entrepreneurship. Everybody does that. You should really do it in the context of the work that you do why don't you call it orgasmic leadership? And I immediately said, that's the greatest name I ever heard. (laughs) But people are generally uncomfortable. When I get to an event or when I'm standing in front of an audience or I'm I'm doing a podcast, everybody's interested in hearing the stories about building a vagina business. That's very different than saying, let's proclaim to the world that um, we're speaking at our corporation or at our conference, and again, things are changing. And I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you today from CES, where the dialogue from last year to this year around sex tech has changed dramatically in a positive way. Um, but at the time that this idea of orgasmic leadership was put into my head, it was, it was a different world even three years ago. So 
I said, it's a great idea. No one's hiring me to talk about orgasmic leadership. They'll hire me to talk about leadership and then I could talk about leadership and sexual health, but it has to be a much more subtle approach. About six months later, I, it all this sudden occurred to me that it was a name for a book. So I reached out to about a half dozen people I knew in the space. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this book. I'd like to schedule a structured interview with you to talk about your path and your learning and really towards the goal of writing a business book that looked at these businesses from sexual and reproductive health across the spectrum in the context of business trends and what these companies and founders had done to take advantage of those business trends to build their businesses. That idea turned into interviewing over three dozen entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners and resulted in you know, orgasmic leadership profiting from the coming surge in women's sexual health and wellness. So that's the orgasmic leadership title, if you will, in a little bit of a neat package. But when I went back to write the book, um, it was very clear to me that there was a moment, an actual moment, where I realized and my business partner, uh, Mary Ench, realized that we would have to approach this category um, in a very, very different way. So um, it was 2008 and it was first time fundraising for anything, but certainly our first time fundraising for this business. We had run businesses and we had provided strategic guidance to businesses, but we had never um, raised money. And we had 13 meetings with venture capital companies in two days. And what that just means is they become a blur, a blur at least to the entrepreneur. They all say they have different investment theses and, and different approaches and different relationships with um, founders, but it becomes pretty much of a, uh, an, an indiscriminate blur of one company to the next. So we go to the first one. And the first question that we're asked is, how is this different than Viagra? And we give the scientific answer, how uh, Viagra works as a vasodilator and so on and so forth, and how the female sexual response process is so different. Okay. Um, and for people who haven't raised money, one of the objectives when you go into these meetings is to engage someone's interest and to generate questions and conversation. So short of that, you know, the worst thing I thought could happen was that there's no question. There are no questions. But it turns out there's something that's worse than that, which is they're giggling to each other. I'm in a room of mostly middle-aged white men and I hear them whispering about, you know, their prom dates and, you know, their exploits from uh, bygone days. So it was very clear from the first meeting that we weren't going to be able to engage in the conversation that would help us raise money. So we go into the second one and the, the first question that we get, and understand this is in the context of Shearson's just gone bankrupt. Um, the bottom is falling out of the financial markets. And here we are, two women who have run services businesses before going into Silicon Valley, asking for money to run a vagina business. So the second meeting that we go into, uh, we get the question, you did this survey, this, this clinical study, and it talks about her satisfaction. What about his? And again, we gave a very, what we thought was a thoughtful response about how the product worked to promote her satisfaction and that if it was demonstrated an increase of satisfaction on the male partner's point of standpoint or perspective, it was a result of him feeling like he was a more able partner. And it was important to state that this clinical had been designed for heterosexual couples in long-term relationships. So we leave the second meeting and, you know, Mary and I, 
say, you know, at this rate, we're going to go through 11 more and we're not going to leave with a dollar. Something made me look in my wallet. I have no idea why. And I'm a credit card person. So I, because I like to track everything. So I rarely carry cash. I happen to have a hundred dollar bill in my wallet. And all of a sudden, Mary and I had this idea and we huddled and we said, listen, we're going to have to try something, you know, fairly dramatic if we hope to leave here um, with some big dollars that can help catalyze the growth of our company. So we go into the third meeting after our strategy session and I take a $100 bill and I slam it on the table and I say, here's a $100 bill. If anyone asks us a question about the category that we can't answer, this $100 is yours. If you make a sexual innuendo that we haven't heard before or a double entendre that makes us blush, this $100 is yours. And then I paused and I said, she likes it more, she wants to have it more, let's talk about the business model. And all of a sudden, there was silence, but it was a different kind of silence. I had their attention. Um, we had said to them, listen, you might be embarrassed. We're not. We're serious business people here to talk about serious business opportunities. And in looking back over the course of writing the book, um, that was the moment where I think I really internalized this idea of orgasmic leadership that it required a different approach. It required a different energy. It required a different vocabulary. And that's really the moment that shaped how we grew the business and how we've talked about the business and how I continue to navigate in the space. I love that story. And I love that you were betting on yourself and you made it so compelling for them to want to learn more versus try to be, try to prove you wrong. And this idea of orgasmic leadership is compelling and it's intriguing. And I also wonder how it comes across if you're trying to sell yourself as a speaker to a corporation. Has there been pushback from that? You know, and I do uh, quite a bit of speaking. And as you would imagine, with a topic like this, there's quite a wide range of reactions that I get. Some people say, I love the book. I can't wait to hear about it. It's so in your face. It's gutsy you know, how do people respond, but I really want to hear about it. And then I have experiences that, um, in which people are interested. They want to hear about the topic. They want me to, you know, share my experience working for, you know, 25 plus years working in and for large companies and consulting to and running small companies. But sometimes they put restrictions on them. Two restrictions on my comments. So two particular experiences uh, rise to the top. I was asked to speak at a large public conservative company in the Midwest, conservative the way that's their, how they described it, to speak, to give the keynote speech at their women's leadership initiative. So there were a couple hundred women in the room and it was a very interactive, fun conversation talking about how to create your leadership voice, how to build it, what the, some of the things you can do to practice it. And obviously at the, at the end, uh, there was Q&A and a woman raised her hand and said, what's the name of your book? Which I'd been specifically asked not to mention the title of. So I turned to my sponsor who had invited me to the, to the workshop and I said, you know, I held my hands up and I said, okay, now what? And she said, well, you were asked a direct question, so I'm comfortable with you answering it. So I answered the question. The title of my book is 
orgasmic leadership, profiting from the coming surge in women's sexual health and wellness. But it was just this sort of funny dynamic where I had gotten to know this audience. We had been having some engaging conversations and I needed to turn and ask permission to say the title of my published book. So that's one example. And it, you know, it's funny. Another one I was invited to speak to um, all the female employees, the senior leader, the female senior leaders at sponsor organizations, um, and women in their broader business community who would be interested. And it was specifically a book launch. However, in my presentation, I was asked to put, to block out the name of the book on the cover of the book. So, you know, picture this, I put up a slide. Uh, the book is a mostly white background with uh, red writing and some graphics. And it says, orgasmic leadership, profiting from the coming surge in women's sexual health and wellness. But I had a, to white out, if you will, I had to put a white box over the name of the title in a discussion about the book that I was asked to come speak about. So, you know, there's all kinds of uh, crazy things. But again, as a speaker and as a, as a salesperson, it's really important to understand the best way to deliver the message in the context that you're in. So I do adjust and I do tell people that, I'm, you know, that I can certainly revise it based on what's comfortable in their culture because I want to have the opportunity to talk, to talk about some of the important lessons. And if it's easier for them to digest, if they don't see the name of the book or they don't hear the word vagina, then I'm going to do that and do as much as I can to share the content and to engage in a dynamic conversation. How often do you push back and say, no, I think we really need to leave the title the way it is. I think there will be great value here versus taking the direction from them and switching things around. You know, I usually am, I say, you know, this is the name of the book. It, it is very situation specific. So I will give you an example where I always do push back. I had found, um, someone had recommended me to this, what they said was the world's greatest book PR company and they guarantee you coverage. And I had never heard of that. And I've had a lot of experience in uh, PR. So I said, you know what, I'll give them a call. I'll see. So I get on a call with them and give them a little bit of background. And I get an email a couple of days later saying, you know, our print people think they can help you with this, uh, but you need to change the title of the book when we reach out to print publications. And I said, you know, I sort of said, sarcastically, did you read the book? Did you read any of it where so much is about it is how difficult it is to even have the conversation? And here I'm looking to create a conversation around the book and you're saying, and the topic, you're telling me that I should um, change the topic. And then she said, well, let me see, let me get back to you. And I was very clearly unwilling to change the name of the book. And then she comes back to me a week later and said, you know what? Our TV people said they would have the same problem. So it was very clear that this wasn't uh, a company that I could work with because so much of the conversation is about the challenges that you need to overcome in the category. It's about the urgent need for a language and a vocabulary around the conversation. So if we don't even get past the title of the book, it sort of defeats the purpose in certain settings. Mm -hmm. So I push back as it's appropriate, but what I rarely do is refuse to do it because I think at least some part of the conversation is better than none of the conversation. Yeah. Looking back, 
if you could change the title, would you do something less provocative or do you feel that it is a good place to start the conversation? I think it's a good place to start because the category and the people in it have learned, myself included, that like it or not, you have to get people's attention. You have to be provocative. You have to break through the clutter. So I would say if you're asking me today, almost two years after the book was published and the the many, many conversations I've had, that I wouldn't change it. And I think it's very consistent with the way that I approach business and the way that I approach businesses in this category, um, you know, with a candor and a directness. So if given the choice, I'm going to stick with orgasmic leadership. Mm. What advice do you have for other speakers who want to have a bold statement? They, they have a message that might be somewhat controversial and they might be afraid of putting out there. What would you say to them if they're trying to figure out whether or not to do something bold or do something a little you know, less racy? You know, the boldness for me wasn't to be racy. It was because it reflected how I think and how, and how I talk. But what I would say is you have to be comfortable with whatever it is you're saying. So if racy, to use your expression, at, was, is not comfortable, then that's not for you. So you have to really be able to authentically sort of step into that role. If I got on stage and talked about orgasmic leadership and was uncomfortable and skittish about it, then my message would be, you know, would be marginalized. So I, I think it's also a comfort and, and a style. Uh, the second piece is really being cognizant of the fact that every audience doesn't require the same approach. And if that you should start with audiences with the pr- approach that you think is going to work best and test it out. I mean, I consider every speaking engagement, you know, market research to see what resonates, to see what doesn't, to learn about what works in the context of specific organizations. So I really think it's a test and learn approach. It's very, I don't think you can, personally, I don't think you'll be successful as a speaker with a, with a bold message if you're not aware of your audience, you're not aware that audiences might require different things, uh, and that you're not willing to take the feedback that you get and make some revisions. So it's not just linear, I'm doing this, I'm going full throttle, you know, let the rest of the world, you know, be damned kind of thing. It's here's my message. Here are the people I think would benefit from it. Let me try and deliver it and see what I learn. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for women who want to be an orgasmic leader? What does that require? So I have been obsessedly with Brene Brown. Uh, I don't know if you saw her podcast where she talks, I think it's the second most watched podcast, um, TED Talk. Oh, yeah. And she talks about vulnerability. And she recently did a one-hour special where she talked about daring greatly. And she said something that has really resonated and she gave language to a feeling that I've had many times over the course of my career and certainly over the course of being in this space. And I'll paraphrase, but she says, if you never feel uncomfortable, you're not trying hard enough. So I think there's an acceptance you have to have that it's not always going to feel perfect. You know, there are plenty of times when I have that feeling in the pit of my stomach and I'm concerned 
but I'm going ahead with it anyway. So I think it's accepting that you could be uncomfortable and going ahead anyway. I think it's important to ask for what you want and be direct. So one of the expressions that you know I've heard many times over the course of my career and I use a lot is the answer is always no if you don't ask. So I'll hear from entrepreneurs um, or companies that I work with, I'm concerned or afraid to do X, Y, Z. And my feeling is, what's the worst that can happen? They'll say, no, I don't want to hire you. I don't want to do that project. I don't think that's a good approach. But if you don't ask, there's certainly no opportunity for you able to be able to engage in the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, you know, the first one is testing and learning. The second one is asking. And the third one is understanding that selling is part of everything that you do. Whether it's an idea, you're selling a, a project, you're selling a story, you're selling an article, you're selling to internal people to get people to join your team, or you're selling to management to get funding for your project. It's all about coming up with a message that is compelling enough for your audience to generate the response that you, you're looking for. So whether that's enthusiastic support, whether that's financial support, whether that's sales, whether it's transactions, you really need to be focused on what can I be saying and doing to to activate the response that I want. When you talk about being uncomfortable and doing things that might not always feel easy or like you're ready to do, when you're in that space of feeling the discomfort, what do you do to get value from that? experience? I had this experience recently where I was invited to a rally and I'd never been to a rally and I've been in this space um, quite a long time and, and oftentimes a decade or two older than the up and coming entrepreneurs in the space. I mean, there are a group of us who have been around the block and then there's a, a larger group that are um, millennials and a whole lot younger. I have children that are millennials. And what I do is I say to myself, you're going to learn something. And I, I literally have conversations with myself about the feeling that I get in the pit of my stomach. And I say, you must be trying hard enough because this doesn't feel comfortable. And I literally just push myself through the situation. I, I start conversations and I really try to 100% be present and engaged to learn as much as I can. So I don't have a secret for getting that uncomfortable feeling to disappear but I do think there are some ways that you can work through it when you sort of acknowledge what that feeling is and say, you know, I can do this anyway. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned longevity and being in the space for a long time. And I know being a speaker, being an author, being a business owner can be exhausting and also, you know, it can have a lot of moments of why am I doing this? This is really scary. This is really hard. Do you have any advice for people who are feeling like, they don't want to keep going or maybe what they're doing isn't working and how to find a, a renewed interest since you've had all of these years and I'm sure you've had moments like that. What have you done and what would you tell others to do to keep going? Well, I think it's really important to, to be aware of what you just said, that it is hard to build a business. It's hard to do many, many things that I'm sure your listeners are trying to do. And it will take more energy, more time, and more money, um, at least in my experience, than most people anticipate. And so 
first part is an awareness that you will have those moments where you'll feel down, um, where you'll feel defeated, where you'll say, what I'm doing isn't working. So the first piece is not being caught by surprise when that happens. The second is having some tools and everybody's are different to what happens when you have that feeling. So for me, you know, I do a couple of things. I, I exercise a lot. You know, I joke that I like when I'm done with the workout to be crying, you know, because that's, that's, that signals that it was sufficiently distracting, not literally. Um, I spend a lot of time with family and friends. I love to laugh. So I will, at any point when I need a boost, I will turn on a classic comedy. I could watch it, you know, at any point, minute one, minute 30, minute 120, and watch some of the scenes that in my life have been iconic that just take you out of your life and make you laugh. So for me, whether it's Animal House or Wedding Crashers um, or there's something about Mary, whatever it is, just really that kind of belly laugh that changes your energy. And, and changes how you feel uh, physically. You also, I believe, really need a support system. You have, a, people use different expressions, but almost a, a personal board of directors. So there are people who are your business board of directors, and then there are people who are your personal board of directors. The people that you can talk to at any point and say, I'm feeling down, I don't think I can do this, uh, you know, I don't know if I can keep going, and they know you and love you and don't judge you and know you well enough to give advice to say, you know, you have a couple of options. You've tried that. It didn't work. Let's try this. Maybe you need a break, you know, go meditate, go do yoga, whatever it is people do to take a break. But that also speak honestly with you and sort of acknowledge that this stuff is hard. And on the business board of director side, you know, getting new ideas, getting new energy, getting thinking also is something that you can do when you feel like you've hit you know, crossroads. And, and you will hit them, there's no doubt. You will hit brick walls, you will get discouraged, but the people who will ultimately succeed in anything are the people who don't take no for an answer. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot in this space is there's some specific and particular challenges about fundraising. If you don't keep asking, someone else is going to get your money, literally and figuratively. If you don't keep asking for a yes, someone else is going to get your yes. So the idea that there is something to endurance, I'm sure you've heard the expression, you know, life or business is a marathon, not a sprint. I think being an entrepreneur is a marathon and a sprint. And there will be times when you're going to have to take a, a break and get off the track but you're going to need to do whatever fulfills you or recharges you personally to get back on the track because someone else will. And it's that drive to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish that ultimately has to be at the heart of your motivation and the passion for what you're trying to accomplish and, and the mission for what it is you're trying, you know, the reason you came up with the idea or joined a business in the first place. Yeah. Great advice. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Rachel, and telling us more about your story and what orgasmic leadership is and yeah. how, to, how to tell a bold message. I mean, it's, it's very important to stand behind what you believe and to get that message out there. And you're definitely doing that. So thanks so much for coming on today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. And I think what you're doing, um, shining a light on important conversations is a really valuable contribution. Uh, to your listeners. So thank you. Thank you.
there is my interview with Rachel Brownshirl. I hope you got some good tips to take with you. One of the things she said that I really loved was, you must be trying hard enough because this is really uncomfortable. And that's something she says to herself when she notices the discomfort in whatever she's working on. And I think that's a really good reminder that when things feel hard or uncomfortable, it's not that you're going in the wrong direction. It's that you're growing and that there's something you're going to learn from it. So I hope you you pulled some of your own tidbits out of the conversation that you can take with you and that you think twice about that bold message that you maybe put away years ago or that you tried to soften for others because there are ways to put it out into the world and stand behind it. So if you have any ideas for topics you'd like to hear on the show or guests you'd like to hear, please feel free to email me anytime. My email is Angela at speakersisterhood.com. And I'm looking forward to more big interviews and conversations for you this year on Claim the Stage. So that does it for me today, my friends. As always, stop waiting, start creating. I'll see you next time.